You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We are still in Judges, but we finally moved on from Sam- Samson. I almost said Samuel, but that's different. Now we're going to move to Samuel at a point, <laughs> point in the future. Yeah. No, we haven't got there yet. So we're kind of between Samson and Samuel. But we, we have actually concluded the book of Judges or the book of Deliverers. We, we are moving out of that. So this is almost like a mini book within the book of Judges that we're moving into. It's a... Is it, you said last time it's it, a pair of epilogues, as correct. it were. Yeah, and and they're epilogues, and they're completely self-contained. And because of this, there's been some debate on when and how they got attached to the book. Mm-hmm. But when you start looking at the elements within the story, you begin to see that these stories really are part of the judge's narrative. Mm-hmm. But they're kind of almost like parentheticals. If they would have put them anyplace else inside the book it wouldn't have uh, allowed you to have that flow and that that focus on the judges themselves. Right. So right. basically kind of what you've got going on here is we had the story of the judges. We we saw how they went from from good to okay to mm-hmm. horrible. And now we're seeing how the people of Israel were still very much in the same vein as the judges. Yeah. So we got um just kind of catch up to where we're at as far as the stories. It's kind of funny that there's three stories, and they're actually kind of two stories, but one's in two parts, mm-hmm. um, and then it, they both feature Levites. They do. They do. And so I find that kind of interesting, um, but it, we actually thought we were going to be at the Levite and the concubine, but you, as you mentioned, <laughs> you forgot about the story of Micah and the Levite, which I forgot about the story of Micah and the Levite. Because um, it's that memorable. Because it's that memorable. <laughs> uh, well... On we, uh, on the way to lunch, I I told you it's it's almost like a story that like my six year old would tell me, that yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff that happens, and then <laughs> she just stops talking and walks away. And Pretty much, it, it's uh, it's like that uh, you remember Looney Tunes? Not Looney Tunes, uh, Animaniacs. Yes, I knew the little boy who used to come out and always tell this story about his friend Randy Randy Beeman, yes. and he would tell this rambly story. And then he would just go, okay, okay, bye. <laughs> that's how, that's how these two stories feel to me. But you've yeah. got several pages of notes though. So I'm sure it's more than just <laughs> the rambly neighbor kid. There is more to this. Uh, it's kind of one of those stories that you kind of read it and kind of, you, you go, what, what just happened? What did I just read? And then you forget about it mm-hmm. because what we do as Christian leaders is we read a story and then we go read something else and then we might pull another story out. If we don't read it all in context and you've got to read it in context to understand why there's a point. Right. So, but like you said, there's two stories. So before we get into the story, I, I just want to point out that these two stories of the epilogue really operate off each other. And they've got so many similarities. And the, um, you know, the first thing we, we see it was Dan and Benjamin are your two main tribes. Mm-hmm. 
okay, in both stories. They are both in dire straits for, for different reasons, but there's, there's a major crisis that's happening. And the, the crisis is escalated or kicked off by the arrival of this wandering Levite in mm-hmm. both stories. Uh, the, the Levites in each story have a Judah-Benjamin connection. The first story, the Levite comes from Bethlehem. And in the second story, the Levite goes to Bethlehem. Both Levites wind up with uh, being in Mount Ephraim. Uh, so they can either travel from Mount Ephraim or they're traveling to. It just depends on the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have priests inquiring from God concerning plans of actions in both stories. We have armies of 600 men in both stories. Uh, and they both conclude with references to Shiloh, but in very, very different ways. And that those references to Shiloh are actually what connects the book of Judges to 1 Samuel. Okay. And that's why we, in the Jewish Bible, It, it skips, follows. Yeah. yeah. It, it, where, I'll have to look and see where Ruth is. It? Yeah, it skips. But I know it's not in the same place. No, it's not. It, it skips the book of Ruth, which we have in our, in our Christian Bible. Now, Ruth, you know, it, it fits. It's uh, in there. It's just in a different place. Right. Because if you read like the opening line of Ruth in Hebrew in the days of judging the judges, so automatically you have this this connection. But if you look at the literary content and not just the, the keywords, then it makes sense that we actually uh, would go with Samuel instead of Ruth. So, but the final tie in, in both is the continuing refrain. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sometimes we have the full form of that. Sometimes we just have um, everyone did what was in the right in their own eyes in two different places. So Block suggests that we don't read this as an endorsement of the monarchy because. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been taught that judges and, and a lot of commentators really do agree with this. And they present the idea that judges was written to reinforce the idea that a monarchy was necessary. Mm-hmm. But he says that this is really talking about the fact that people don't need kings to make them sin, and kings don't, you know, uh, kings aren't the ones who can necessarily lead the people in righteousness. It, it's really a personal decision, individual responsibility. So, so is he saying that that it was becoming popular to blame the kings for the downfall of Israel? Yeah, well... And, if and, I, then, and that this book is to say that the... The kings didn't make you do it. Right. Precisely. The, the devil didn't make you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think if you read through 1 Samuel and Second uh, Samuel, and even into the book of Kings, it, there is kind of this idea presented within there that uh, I think a lot of us pick up on, that if Israel had a great king, then they were a great nation. And if they mm-hmm. had a, a horrible king, they were a horrible nation. And But ultimately, it does come down to that individual responsibility. Who are you going to act like as a person? Sure. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, and I think it kind of forces us to kind of grapple with some of these issues in a different way than, than mm-hmm. we tend to. And, and I like that. I like to have a, a perspective of the Bible that makes me stop and go, is there a better way to, to address this? And even if I end up saying, no, it's not a better way, at least I've gone through the steps and kind of allowed myself to explore the text in a new way. So. Mm-hmm. That's no okay. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't considered that that view of it. So this is the reason why I'm reading all the time. So, but he also suggests well, you would still be reading all the time if it wasn't for this. Well, this You'd is true too. Different stuff. Yeah. Well, maybe I don't know. 
But uh, he also suggests that we read this in the light of Deuteronomy 33.5. And Deuteronomy 33.5 says, This is the Lord, Yahweh there, who became this, thus, sorry, not this. It's kind of hard to tell in my handwriting. Thus the Lord became the king of Jeshurim. The, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So it, it, basically the, the point is that God is the king of Israel. God, no matter who's sitting in the throne, God is the king. And if you remember that God's the king of Israel, then your actions are going to be right no matter who's on the throne or if there's no one on the throne. And, you know, I think that's a really good thing for us to remember today. If we remember God is our king, then we're going to behave correctly. And the people of Israel at this point, they're not acknowledging God as king. In the book of Judges, or later on when it's written, when the book of Judges is written, probably during the time of King Manasseh or thereabouts, mm-hmm. as a warning, the people have forgotten they aren't living like they're the children of God, the sons of God. They're, mm-hmm. they're living like they're Canaanites. And so the, the morals and ethics that they demonstrate are Canaanite um, morals and ethics. And, and we see this particularly when we talk about their treatment of women. Right. And so that's... That's a huge point. The, the Israelites, when they're obeying God, treat women very well. Right. So we're going to talk a lot about that in the final story. So this particular chapter and chapter 17 and the chapter before all re- refer to the tribe of Dan. And you got to remember, Samson is from the tribe of Dan. And he's the total utter failure as a Nazarite, a Jew, a judge. and so chapter 17 ties to this, um, I'm sorry, chapter 16 ties to that in the fact that we're talking about the same geography, mm-hmm. we're talking about the same tribes. So we open up, and I love the fact there's no preamble. We, we've got this really weird opening verse, and it says, there was a man from the, of the hill country in Ephraim, whose name was Micah, and then he said to his mother, the 100 pe- one, uh, 1,100 pieces of silver that were stolen from you or taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. So this is how, how we open up with the confession. Yeah. Well, it's, <laughs> it's also weird. I mean, again, we have the 1,100 pieces of silver. Mm-hmm. Also and, tying us back to Samson. Right. Which makes you wonder who was the boy's mother? Precisely. Um, how wealthy was she? Yeah. Because if, if you have that much, because when you look at later on, I mean, I'm skipping ahead a little mm-hmm. bit. When he says what he's going to pay the priest, he says he'll pay him 10 shekels a year. Yeah. Or, or 10 pieces of silver a year or whatever it is the mm-hmm. the, the measurement is. But yeah, I, that's that's a lot of money. It, that's huge. If you think about, you know, a, year, a living yearly wage mm-hmm. multiplied by, I don't do math, sure. but you know, this you. Is, <laughs> but this is a person who is. Who definitely is rich. And not only is this person rich, the person who's rich is the woman. 110 years. Okay, so a living wage for 110 years. Can you imagine somebody stealing that from you today? So, and not only did he just steal it, he stole it from his mother. I mean, Mm -hmm. so we're we're kind of getting this really weird um, picture of him right off the bat. And, And by the way, 
look up that verse. I should have told you earlier to look it up in, look up Judges 17 in the Jewish Bible, because I didn't take time to do this. And yeah, it seems like I I was kind of surprised by that. Normally you do. I, I, I did, but I was reading so many different translations. What's his name there in the? Micah. It's just Micah? Micah. Okay, so in the Hebrew, actually in the Masoretic text, it's not Micah. It's Micah Yehu. It's his full name. There's a footnote. I'm trying to find it. Okay. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It has it in the footnote. Okay, has it in the footnote. I did not have it in my ESV. Micah Yehu means who is like Yahweh. It actually includes the letters of the Tetragrammaton there in his name. Mm-hmm. So... Well, we're going to call him this right up till verse four, and then we're going to, it's going to drop to Micah and we're going to lose that, that suffix on there. And the rabbis say that this is because the, the writer is demonstrating that he's getting further and further from God as time progresses. And I don't know why we don't keep that in the English. I don't think it would be that hard to add, but we don't, but Despite the fact he's got this great name, he's never presented uh, as a really great guy. And well, it's funny, uh, although here in the this this footnote says uh, Mikey Yehu here and in verse four. Yeah, that's so, the last time. So that's oh, you're saying is that okay? Yeah, I thought you're saying you dropped it in verse four. I'm like, but it says it. But no, okay, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So um, basically, mom has uttered a curse. the The word here is ayla. Uh, it, it's a very rare word in the. Um, in the Bible, it's basically an abbreviated curse formula. Uh, it's a conditional curse. And usually what it was, if somebody stole something from you, you would utter this curse that if they didn't return it, then something horrible would happen to them. Their ears would fall off or something, you know, just some kind of random supernatural event that was supposed to be painful. Okay. So I don't know why I chose ears, but, um, a lot of times these would include, you know, if it's. <laughs> All right. It's, just, it's oddly specific, but go ahead. Oh, no, no, wait. I am like so vague. We're going to keep going with this. So a lot of times in these curses, there would be the promise that if your God returned whatever was stolen, then you would dedicate a, a portion of it. Mm-hmm. So this is actually something we kind of see. um not so much in scripture, but we do find the, the same formula. And I want, I, I got to kind of tread two grounds here with it in okay. order for it to make sense. So we find the same word in Numbers 5, um, verse 21, I think it's through 27. I didn't write the end verse. But this is when a woman's been accused of adultery. Okay. Her husband's suspicious, and they, he takes her before the priest, and she takes what is literally the oath of the curse, the Shavat Ha'olah. And after she makes this, this oath of the curse, the woman actually has to say the words. Mm-hmm. She's supposed to drink some water. If she's innocent, then it's, you know, this nice, refreshing drink. And they go on with their life. Um, if she's guilty, this is what the scripture says in Numbers. Right. It would enter into her, cause her pain, and her womb would swell, and her thigh shall fall away, and the woman shall become a curse among the people. So... I don't know. I mean, I'm still trying to imagine what the thigh would fall away would look like. That just really kind of freaks me out just a little bit. Um, yeah. But this is the idea that a by 
uttering this oath over herself, she's basically putting herself before God to judge. Right. God is the ultimate judge. He's going to be the one who not only finds her innocent guilty, he, he's going to be the one who decrees the punishment. Mm-hmm. So um, when somebody would do this in the Bible for a lost object or object that had been stolen, they're basically saying, I, I'm not going to be the one who's going to judge. I'm going to let God judge who's guilty for, for doing me wrong. Mm-hmm. And the person was really relinquishing the right to judge the other person. So on the, on the surface, what his mom's doing kind of seems very pious. Mm. It, it seems like she's really, she knows what's going on. And we kind of hope that because remember Manoach's wife, we just got done reading about her. And if you were reading this straight through, the, Manoach's wife would still be on your mind. But... um she's she's really not and we're going to see why that's not the case um you know despite all the indicators because another indicator in here is when she's talking about the gods or god she Mm -hmm. is using yahweh right she's using the proper uh terminology so but we can't get our hopes up too quick because verse three and he's talking about micah restored the one uh, eleven hundred i can't even read can restore and he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And the mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from the hand of my son. Okay. So she's saying that they're going to dedicate the silver to Yahweh. The word there, if you remember, mm-hmm. if the Lord's all in caps, then it is Yahweh. And in case you missed it, what she's attempting to do here is to buy God off. Right. We, we, don't, we don't do this. And the reason why you don't do this, uh, particularly in this way, is it's not, this is never recorded in the Bible as something that is proper or a prescribed way for Israelites to handle stolen goods or, you know, to serve God in in some kind of gratitude for returning Mm -hmm. something to him. What we do have is lots of Greek manuscripts where the idea would be that you would make this oath over the 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 thief mm-hmm. and then you would agree to return one tenth to half of the recovered goods to the God who found these things to, for you. Right. So she's not sounding like an Israelite here. She's actually sounding like a Greek. Okay. And we've already talked about how this is a problem with the Philistines and the connections for the Greeks. So we mm-hmm. don't have any uh, as far as I know, we don't have any manuscripts from anybody specifically in this area at the time. But where we see that Philistine Greek connection, I don't think it's too much to think that she would have been influenced by these trains of thoughts mm-hmm. that we see manifest in the Greek culture. Right. So she says so she dedicates it to make a carved image, a metal image, and therefore restore it to, uh, therefore I will restore it to you again. So she... Micah has given her the, the money. Mm-hmm. She's given it back to him. Mm-hmm. And there are so many problems already within the first three verses of this, of this text telling us that, you know, these people, number one, we've got a, we got a thief who's willing to steal from his mom. Yeah. We have a mother who is um, uttering curses over people. Well, and, and what I what I hear when I hear that first bit too with the 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 curse you 
uh, how was he phrased it? Um, with the curse you spoke and whispered in my ear, mm-hmm. or spoken spoke it into my ears. Uh-huh. It sounds like it sounds like the the thing that parents do with their kids that oh, if you don't give it back, uh-huh. bad things are going to happen to you. Right. It, it sounds like she's suspicious. It's like she's threatening him. Yeah. Yeah. Like she she knows what her son is capable of. I, I think it's hard not to be a parent and not see that. Right. And, you know, the, the oath and the curse and, and this, this bribery attempt, you know, that's hard for us not to see Jephthah in that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially when we use the word oath. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it, we're, we're going to see several connections back to, and we, and we already have, even like the, the 1,100 pieces of silver, we can go back to Gideon with that, not mm-hmm. just Samson. We're going to go back and see the connections to these judges that's gone before and realize that the judges are just like everybody else. Right. That, that's really the point of the story. They're, everyone is just like everyone else. Yeah. And there's a problem with that. So um, there's some debate on whether she dedicated the money before or after uh, it was restored to her. Like if it was dedicated and then Micah stole it or if it was stolen and then she decided to dedicate some of it. Or if it was stolen, then she decided to dedicate it. Then he returned it. And, yeah. Or, or if she dedicated it after he returned it. Yeah. yeah. There's... And yeah, because it seems like he's returning the, the money not because, oops, I shouldn't have done this. I, I had a moment of weakness and I did wrong by my mom. It's like he's doing it out of fear. Mm-hmm. And you know, she, she repeats this blessing over him that, that he would be blessed by Yahweh and then offers this dedication. And most of the scholars agree that the blessing is to offset the curse. And that okay. possibly by dedicating this money, she's trying to, to buy God off so the curse won't impact her son. And so I, I tend to read it that this dedication actually happened after either after it was stolen or after Micah returned it. Once she okay. knew for certain it was Micah, that's what I'm seeing in it. So she's, she is not being the, the epitome of obedience and righteousness that we'd hoped that she would be when she first started speaking. Sure. So. The problem is it gets worse. It always gets worse. It's judges. It always gets worse. There's there's no up in this book. We're always going down. Uh, Verse four. So when he restored the money to his mother, the mother took 200 pieces of the silver and gave it to a silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. Where are the other 900 pieces? I mean, I'm willing to pay 200 pieces for you not to kill my son, but 1100 is just too much. No, I mean, he did steal from her, so <laughs> I mean. Yeah, but, but there's, no, there's no clarification that she only dedicated a portion. It, it sounds from the language that she had dedicated all of it, but yet she's only to, going to give 200 pieces. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a problem here. With her, and of course, immediately my mind goes to Ananias and Sapphira, and you know, withholding the the portion, the, the portion of the proceeds mm-hmm. from the property. Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm not don't know how big of a connection we can make there. I think we need to be careful not to go too far, as we demonstrated with our last episode with Samson and Jesus. Right. But it did remind me of that. So, and this is the verse where where Micah Yehu just becomes 
Micah. Okay. So, um, and I, I think there's something very telling in that. And I think the, ra- the rabbis were right with that. Now, the carved image and a metal image, what they're probably saying here is that there was a carved image made out of wood. And then overlaying with the silver. It, precisely. Precisely. Yep. So it's not one image it, or two images. It's one image, but mm-hmm. it has both these elements in it. And it's because the Hebrew actually says a hewn image and a poured image. Okay. Yeah, that so, would make sense. But this connects us back to Gideon and his ephod. Right. And we talked about how the ephod was probably something that covered a carved idol. Right. And just like Gideon, Micah is going to keep this image in his house. But it's, it's more than a house. And the, the tip-off is with the, the Hebrew that's used there. Two terms. It's uh, Maseka. Maseka is um, the metal image. Mm-hmm. And Pesel, this is, these are words that are used for images that are kept in shrines, in public shrines. They're not household gods. These are not something that you would just have in a little niche in the corner of your room and your, your family would, would honor it. This was actually something that outsiders came to see. Yeah. Well, it says in the ESV that he had a shrine, uh, he had a shrine and made an ephod in it for the household gods. So I guess, yeah, having the shrine would be part of it. He, yeah. And we're going to, we're going to get to that because, um, you know, having a shrine and actually the word here, I'm jumping ahead a bit. The here, the word here in the Hebrew was he made a house, a bet Elohim. And this is important. Bet Elohim is kind of ambiguous because as we've talked before, Elohim can mean God, God, or it can mean gods. gods. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. There's, there's no clarification with that. Which one did he make? And so, you're supposed to get this little bit of doubt in your mind about right. what's going on. So, verse five kind of talks about what you were talking about. Uh, then Micah had a shrine that Bet Elohim, uh, and he made an ephod, and a household gods and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So let's talk about the obvious problems. One, he has a shrine. Yeah. Two, he made an ephod, and he made household gods, and he ordains one of his sons, and the son serves as his priest. I, that's all this list is. This, list, uh, this verse is, is a list of problems. Yeah. Well, it just seems kind of strange. I mean, because, I mean, if he was in the land of Ephraim, mm-hmm. not a Levite, mm-hmm. so not supposed to be a priest. Correct. Son also, not, not a Levite. <laughs> so on what authority did he ordain his son? Right. Or, you know, how did, how did that happen? Or is that something? Or was he, was he working, you know, with, with some Philistine priest? Was he, was he inducted into, like, the Philistine priesthood and was passing things down to his son? Or I mean, he saw how the Philistines did it and said, oh, okay, I can do the same thing at my house. Sure. You know, but, uh, this is the question. I mean... Everything he's doing is is nothing like what the Torah has prescribed. It's all something that's been borrowed from another culture. Mm-hmm. And this is why it, it's significant. So we're going to look at each well, one of the... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, and it's also very interesting that she says she's going to dedicate the money to the Lord. Mm-hmm. And Yahweh. She get, yeah. Yeah. That she gives the money to him to be made, specifically to be made into an image. Right. And it's... What's... Th- 
where does where does that come from? So yeah, it's again, it's it's one of those borrowed Canaanite practices that we've taken the Canaanite sticker off, and now we're slapping on a Christian sticker, and it's okay. Right. I mean, that, that's really all it amounts to. So, but I wanted to go through each of these things and and talk about why they are a problem. Um, just in case anyone's forgotten, if you go back and listen to the Gideon stuff, you're going to hear a lot of the same thing because the problem is just almost identical. Right. Um, number one, you're only supposed to worship God in that place where he shows you the Macomb. Uh, in this case, at um, this point in time, we're looking at Shiloh, possibly Bethel. And this is in neither of those places. So th- he's got no right to establishing a worshiping place. but Neither Gideon didn't have a right to establish a place to offer a sacrifice, even at the very beginning of the encounter. Mm. Uh, Manoach and his wife, again, didn't have a right to establish a place to offer a sacrifice at the beginning of their encounter. Gideon certainly didn't have a right to set up a shrine. So an ephod, now this is different than the ephod Gideon made, because Gideon's is something that they were worshiping. The This seems to be actually something that can be worn that looks more like the ephod of the, of the priest of the temple. Right. And this is a divining device. It's, it's something you use to go and find out God's design or decree. Uh, think Ouija board. Uh, you know, this is not something that somebody from Israel should be playing with. Yes. The, the purpose is to gain illicit knowledge uh, in we talked about that so much in our Genesis uh, series. The household gods here, this is teraphim. So if you, if you think this word sounds familiar, you're right. Because when we talked about Jacob and Rachel, when they're, they're leaving Laban's house, Rachel stole the teraphim. And they were evidently small enough to hide under a camel saddle. Right. And these were used also for divining, but they were also used for fertility and general household protection. A lot of times they may have represented... Uh, an ancestral spirit. Mm-hmm. And so once again, we're violating, I, not to worship in the wrong spot. We're, we're worshiping with the wrong items. Uh, worshiping the wrong gods. We're worshiping the wrong gods, ancestral spirit, all, all these things that the Torah is very specific. You don't do. And then he, he ordains his son who, like you mentioned, uh, priests are supposed to be Levites, specifically from the line of Aaron. Uh, so he had no right to ordain a son, and the mm. son had no right to serve as a priest. But what I'm seeing with Micah, I, I'm seeing this everywhere. It's like, we're just going to get the pieces and parts of each religion that we like, mm-hmm. and, and we're going to collect it all, mm. and this is going to be how we worship. And, and we really are worshiping God, and you know it's okay because our heart's in the right place. And not paying attention to the fact that we're in direct disobedience, it's it's a problem. And so I think Micah is probably even more desperate than a lot of people. I think he really does think that this is going to be what's going to save him and help prosper him. Sure. I I don't think he's doing it out of any kind of uh, direct rebellion. I think he really thinks this is what's necessary to survive. Right. So, um, now, despite all of this, though, I, I think one of the most disturbing elements of this is any time they mention a God by name, it's always Yahweh. Mm-hmm. 
it, it's it's never another God. So that I think that's really interesting because you would expect to hear some whisper mm-hmm. of another God's name in here, but but it's not. So we're in verse six at this point. Yeah. And it says, in those days, there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it's kind of being offered as the explanation for why Micah feels okay in doing this. Right. And it's kind of funny that it kind of comes at the end of a, like a section as opposed to the beginning. Normally yeah. we have it at the end or at the beginning. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of added in here to kind of let you know why someone could do this. Um, you know, if, if you're not listening to the absolute that God's presented in the law, then this is what you're going to wind up doing. And, you know, and we can laugh or be disgusted by Micah, pick one. But how many of us are guilty of the same thing? How many of us go, oh, well, you know, this seems right. This seems good. Mm-hmm. But that we don't actually look at how that practice or that mindset fits in with what God's word has to say. And Micah's not doing it either. And yet at the same time, he seems to have some kind of knowledge about how to worship God. He knows the right name to call God. Mm-hmm. He, he understands that God has power. He, he, he has some type of faith in, in Yahweh. Right. So there's, it's a really confusing, conflicting story that on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense. and. You know, maybe if Micah had just actually stopped and looked and looked at God as king and said, he does deserve my obedience, right? then we wouldn't have to worry about all this. So after we have this, this kind of little break with everybody saying it was right in their own, you know, there was no king, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. We pick up in um, verse seven, and it almost at first seems to have no connection. It's this right. weird... I, the, the writing's really choppy at this point. And, Noticeably, even oh, in yeah. English. Oh, yeah. There, there's no smoothing it out. Uh, it, it's intentionally jarring. It, it's a literary device that the, the writer's using to kind of make you feel off kilter. So verse 7 says, A young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and there, he sojourned there. So the Levites were... Like I said, children of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron. Uh, they also, Moses would have been in the tribe of, of the Levites. And they are the ones who, they, all, they serve as priests, but they're also, if they're not from the tribe of Aaron specifically or the clan of Aaron specifically, then they're helpers. And they okay. might actually go out to different villages and different towns if God sends them there mm. to help work out different ways of, um, you know, is this proper? Is this the right way to do this ritual? Is this the correct way mm-hmm. to, however it, it goes, whatever, try to practice, whatever practice they're trying to, to do. And the Levites go there to, to help with this, but sure. then they would return home. And the problem is, the Levite in this particular book isn't from where the Levites were from. Right. Le- he's, he's from Bethlehem. He's from Bethlehem. Yeah, because the Levites didn't get a land allotment like the other tribes. They just had certain cities scattered throughout the country. Mm-hmm. But Bethlehem, 
uh, was not one of those cities. So one of the possibilities is that he may have come from a family that was staying in Bethlehem uh, with a, some of the uh, tribe of Judah, mm-hmm. trying to help them work through some different issues. He could have just been wandering around, doing whatever, trying to figure out how do I live? How do I support myself? Because mm-hmm. if Israel's not worshiping God and they're not providing the proper sacrifices, and then who's sustaining the Levites? Right. So it kind of makes sense that he's kind of, you know, just footloose and fancy free. Uh, he's not from the tribe of Judah in all probability. Okay. What, what this means is that he was just living in a place that Judah controlled because Bethlehem was a city of Judah. And as a city of Judah, the, um, this would have been one point on his journey, you know, is coming mm. from the city of Judah. So Got it's you. not saying that he, that he is from the tribe. There's a slight possibility that if a member of the tribe of Levi, Levi had member, uh, sorry, I can't even talk. If a member from the tribe of Levi had married a member of the tribe of Judah, then it could, you know, possibly be true, but that's typically not what happened. Um, but of course, nothing in Judges is typical. Right. So we, we don't really have a good explanation about why this wording is used other than at some point. He lived in Bethlehem. Right. So long way to get there, I know. <laughs> Very long way. Indeed. <laughs> so, but um, it doesn't seem to be that he was actually in, in Bethlehem to, to serve a family. It, it, it seems like he was just knocking about because um, the, the Bible uses the word sojourn. Uh, he, he, this is the idea that you're going someplace to temporarily. Yeah, it's not a. It's never a permanent location. Uh, in this verse, he's looking for a place. Mm-hmm. He he's he's looking for some place to belong, and he's very quick to accept Micah's offer. Right, and um, so he um does find Micah, and this whole next the next section could be, you know, the who's on first routine. The whole Laurel and Hardy routine. It, it's okay. It it's so well written. Well, tell us about but it. But I will. I'm <laughs> getting there. So, but um, okay. So he he journeys. He finds the house of Micah. Micah, the great collector of all things religious paraphernalia wise, who's only missing the Levite for his great collection. Um, he talks to the the Levite, and and essentially he says, you know. Where where are you from? And the Levite says, you know, I'm from Bethlehem, and I'm just looking for some place that that kind of strikes my fancy. Mm-hmm. And Micah goes, well, do you do you fancy being my dad and my priest? Right. And you know, the Levite he never in the Bible he never says anything. He just goes in with Levi uh, with Micah. There's no there's no dialogue. It's kind of like yeah, got nothing better to do. It's uh, yeah. It- and I find it interesting that Micah says, would you like to come be, be as my father and my priest? Like, yes, I, I'm, I'm sure there's something to that language, but it, it just seems like, okay, so was, did he not have an actual father or is he using father as an eternal, like some kind of spiritual term? What are we looking at here? It's, well, it's I, confusing. Okay. So yeah, well, we obviously uh, there's the problem with the father figure. Where was he in Micah's life? Mm-hmm. Why is the mom having to deal with the theft? So, so there seems to be some indication dad was gone. Mm-hmm. Then 
this is how messed up it is because when the Levite comes along, it says there's a young man. Uh, you couldn't be a priest until you were in the th- in your 30s, and that's okay. recorded in numbers. So the idea that the text is saying that he's too young mm-hmm. to be a priest. So and then there's Micah saying, "Come be my dad," and but in verse 11 it says that he became as one of Micah's sons. And so, young man, be my father, but you're going to get treated like a son. It's all these reversals, boom, 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 stacked on top of each other. And what the the writer is really doing, the writer's showing you, nobody's holding a consistent line of thought. Right. Nobody has a consistent standard of speech or behavior or belief or it's this messed up and the writer's kind of showing off. I mean, he, he's having a lot of fun with these inversions because you can read through them and not see how quickly people are mm-hmm. flipping roles if you aren't paying attention to it and really looking for what's going on. But that's the other thing. Nobody in the text seems to be upset by this. Right. Everybody in the story seems to act like this is normal. Yeah. Is, <laughs> it's, yeah. I. It's crazy. Yeah. But this is what happens when you don't have a standard to live by. And where do you get your standard from? You get a standard from your king. And so if there's no king in Israel, eh, yeah, do whatever. So verse 12 says, and Micah ordained the Levite and the young, young man became Micah's priest and was in the house of Micah. Now, that word ordained literally means to fill his hand. Okay, yeah. And we actually have an Akkadian cognate. I mean, it's, it's the exact same word. Very rarely do you get these great exact matches in the mm-hmm. cognates, but this time you do. And it's included in this description that whenever you would ordain a priest or a king or whoever was going into a public office, that you would give them some kind of tangible object that signified their, uh, their power and yeah. authority. So it's kind of like, you know, if you think of uh, scenes where you see a coronation, where they, the kings get the rod and the scepter and... the oh, I, coronation. I heard carnation. <laughs> no, that's like, different. I've seen a carnation. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't understand what we're doing. Is this a common gift for people receiving power? No. Uh, <laughs> so there's a whole story on carnations and proms, but we'll talk about that later. Um, so the idea that that... Micah is filling this dude's hand and, and giving him this emblem of this, this position that he's now arrived in. But there, there seems to be a double meaning in it. Okay. Because Micah doesn't just say, hey, come fulfill God's call for your life in order to be a spiritual leader. Let me give you stuff. Well, it, does it, does, I mean, is there also kind of a connotation of, you know, he filled his hands, like he gave him a whole bunch of stuff to do so that he couldn't be faithful to Yahweh? Uh, not so much that. It's more just the payoff. He, okay. he was paid off. And we're going to see that, especially when we move, move into the next chapter. But Micah in verse 13, his, his response is, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite priest. Mm-hmm. He, okay, number one, how much more does the guy need to be prospered? Uh, he comes from wealthy family. He's obviously wealthy himself because he can support a shrine or a bet mm-hmm. Elohim. Uh, he's rich enough to buy a priest. He literally buys a priest. Yeah. Which, 
I mean, you know, if you're saying, you know, how much more does he need to prosper? I mean, that's really kind of the thing, you know, how many people ever think they have enough? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, it's not. I, well, and he's got more than one son because he made one of his sons mm-hmm. a priest, which, by the way, what happened to the son? Is he displaced? Does he become the Levite's helper? Does he, I, what happened to this kid who was elevated to this great position and then gets knocked out of it because somebody with the right credentials comes along? Mm. And yeah, you know, and and well, how and you're kind of looking at it going, well, they can't, no wonder they can't keep up with you know and worship one God. They can't even keep one priest, you know, <laughs> right. And we're just, you know, if one comes along that we like better, then we're going to, yeah, ask the last guy. And I think that kind of reveals the desperation of Micah. I mean, if he's willing to do away with the son in order to to install this Levite as a priest, then how desperate is he? Mm-hmm. he he's really attempting to to grab hold of something. I mean, the man's literally manufacturing ways and means to have access to God. And he's making ephods. He, he's building household gods. He, he says he constructed those. Mm-hmm. So he, he's not insincere in his attempt to try to, to get near God and, and to have access to God. He's just not willing to be obedient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the, the spiritual leadership that should be teaching him how to be obedient doesn't seem to be present either because the, the Levite, he should have been saying, dude, no, we can't have a shrine here. I, I know this. I was taught that having a shrine someplace outside of where God ordains is wrong. You can't have an ephod and household gods and claim that you serve Yahweh. You can't have this graven image. This right. is completely against what we're supposed to be doing. That's what the spiritual leadership should have been doing in Israel. Instead, he's like, hey, you're going to pay me? I'll join in. I'll help you sin a little bit more. You know, we'll dress it up and make it look really good. Well, yeah. And well, yeah. And well, he like the things you mentioned, there's there is, you know, Micah saying, oh, I, I, I need a Levite because you know, if I have the Levite, because they're the ones with access to God, and mm-hmm. if I pay for him, he's going to do let me do things the way I want. He's going to listen to me. And you have the Levite, who, as you said, is list, is described as a young man. So mm-hmm. he's possibly going, "Hey, well, if I can be, if I can get someone to ordain me as a priest, the, at this age, I don't have to wait till I'm all grown up." Right. Yeah. Well, and that's that's just the thing. He he's not having to pay his dues, so to speak, and. What we're, we're seeing here is that this corruption, which you know, we saw it with, with Samson. The ju- okay, so the judges, the leadership of the people, they're corrupt. You see mm-hmm. that with Samson. Micah is pretty freaking well-to-do, and he's corrupt. Mm-hmm. And then the Levite, who's supposed to represent the spiritual leadership, he's corrupt. Mm-hmm. And so we've got three different major levels and classes of people in Israel, in Israel who should have been leadership, who should have been directing people back to the worship of Yahweh, mm-hmm. who are all falling down on their jobs. And, you know, it, Micah's desperation shouldn't surprise us. It really should be what we expected, because one of the things that we're seeing with him is 
he has created this religion based on what he sees everybody else doing Mm -hmm. and what he thinks is good about what everybody else is doing. And yet there's still this level of doubt because when we create a religion, when we decide, hey, we as human beings know the best way to please God, Mm -hmm. we've got it figured out. Then now we're creating doubt for ourselves, and it's always going to be manifest in insecurity. It's going to be manifest in desperation. It's going to be manifest in uh, anger and bitterness. It's going to be manifest in so many negative ways. But when we say, hey, God actually made his will known so that we can join with him in his purposes, then we can relax. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be these uptight, gloomy, bitter people. We can actually just be someone who enjoys the presence of God and enjoys sharing that with others. Mm-hmm. And Micah can't do that. He's always reaching out for that next little piece. Now, this Levite's going to be the reason that he comes into utter destruction. It's going to totally devastate him. I mean, to the very core of who he is, the Levite's going to just decimate him. Yep. and. We already know as readers looking forward, we can, we can see this because we've had the whole book of Judges leading us down this downward spiral. Mm-hmm. But we also know that whenever you aren't who God created you to be, thanks to Samson, we know that this leads to destruction. We've had all the clues put in place. We don't expect too much from the Levite. And that's an important thing for us to realize that where the placement is in this book, that we, we've got the tip-offs. Mm-hmm. Everything's pointing in the same direction. And so <laughs> this Levite, by failing to be who he was supposed to be, he puts himself in a position where he's actually just going to be led astray in massive ways. Mm-hmm. Micah, like I say, is going get, to get destroyed, but then it's going to have impact on the entire nation of Israel. Mm -hmm. Even though it begins in a private individual home, the entire nation is going to feel this for hundreds of years. And that's fascinating to me that we pause in, in this book of judges of great leaders to actually get to that point where basically an insignificant, nobody gets to change the course of the nation. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why it's so important that we've got to have everyone recognizing that God is king. Well, and I think there's, I mean, there's definitely a, a lesson for us, for modern day uh, listeners and modern day readers is, you know, I, I know he's not super popular right now in the Christian circles, <laughs> but Derek Webb, you know, he was talking about in one of his concerts is that if we would, yeah, yeah I went and saw him before he, you know, before all the scandal and everything, mm-hmm. but one of the things that he mentioned, and it made a lot of sense to me, it's, and I, I think the same idea has been attributed to Mother Teresa and a couple other people. Um, you know, everyone the evangelicals like. That's, that's <laughs> right. Um, but our favorite Catholics. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Derek Webb wasn't Catholic. Well, I know, but I mean, as far as like Mother Teresa and. But, but yeah, but the idea is that, you know, if you want to change the world, you go home and you love your neighbor mm-hmm. and you treat your family well mm-hmm. and you, tr- you, teach people how to love God. Right. I mean, that's, it's not big political rallies. I mean, those do have some influence, but really if people are of good character, then that's, what's really going to change the world. If you're teaching people how to be of good character and how to, how to worship God. Yeah. 
Well, you know, there, there's a understanding in, in Judaism that every time we act in loving kindness, we are acting as if God is the king. Mm-hmm. We are demonstrating that God's kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven. Mm-hmm. We are being the fulfillment as Christians. We're being the fulfillment of that prayer. Mm-hmm. Because when we act in kindness in a world that's unkind and we act with gratefulness in a world that's ungrateful, and generosity in a world that's not generous. I mean, we can keep going on and on. When we say these principles are higher because they're my king's principles than the things around me, we're saying that our king is greater than the things around us. Right. And so just like Samson, you know, pushing down the temple of Dagon because Yahweh's bigger than Dagon, it's us doing it on a microcosm. It's us doing it in these little bitty ways mm-hmm. of coming against these evil ideas and pressures that are in our lives. And saying, I can do this because I do have faith mm-hmm. in my God, and I do acknowledge him as our king. And I think that's where we as modern Christians have fallen down. We don't acknowledge God as king. Well, there's, there is definitely that. But there's, you know, we, we do have a lot of people today who want to blame other people for their, for their downfall. Well, so... And, and I find it interesting because, you know, you've got, you've got Israel here who keeps... Who keeps messing it up? And you have uh, is was it Block? You said who's mm-hmm. saying we're not praising the the kingship here. We're saying you're still responsible for you. Yeah. And that it wasn't the king who made them sin. It wasn't the king who brought the nation down. Mm-hmm. It's the people. And and so we have you know I find it interesting that you have Israel moves in. They've had a little bit of time even before they move in. They've had 40 years mm-hmm. before they move into the promised land to kind of mm-hmm. establish who they are. And they arrive on the scene and immediately forget what God told them, basically. Pretty but much. But then parallel that with the church. And I'm not trying to say the church is any better, <laughs> but the church grew and thrived um, because they worship Christ as king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, in, and they grew and they, they, they thrived in a, a very sinful environment. Yeah. And in the face of major persecution and so many things that we can't even begin to wrap our heads around what it must have been like to have been a Christian in those early days when it was an outlawed religion and whenever we were accused of things like cannibalism mm-hmm. and, you know, where when Nero was in power and mm-hmm. the, the Christians who died in that Colosseum and it, it just, we don't think about that thing, those things because I think, number one, we're not taught our history, and so much of world history, especially European history, is Christian history, mm-hmm. whether we want to admit it or not. Um, so we're not taught our history, and we don't, we don't think about it from that point of view. But, you know, if we really stop and think about the historical roots of the church and what the church has gone through over the last 2,000 years, we begin to realize we have it really good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we are not nearly as bad off as what so many people want to believe that we are. I mean, there was a point in time when Fox's books, A Book of Martyrs, was required reading in school. And I don't think we heard Christians complaining about how badly they were treated the way we do now, but right. it's because we've forgotten our history. Well, what's going on in Judges? They've forgotten their history. I mean, we have already heard back in, I believe it was Judges 2, that the, the elders were no longer teaching the people what was going on. They weren't teaching the next generation the truth. And mm-hmm. this generation had not seen 
they they hadn't been present for the red crossing of the Red Sea. They hadn't been there at Sinai. They hadn't eaten manna. They this is the generation that is just one step removed from from the Exodus and those great miraculous manifestations of God. Right. And so we we've got to remember how easy it is to lose perspective and. Most of us need to actually do things, actively do things to try to regain perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's called discipline. And that's if we can do that for ourselves, we actually become much better human beings and people tend to enjoy us a lot more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think with with Micah, what we're seeing is somebody who doesn't know his history, somebody who doesn't know his his heritage and he doesn't know his identity. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know those things, I mean, really know those things, and they leave you grasping for whatever you can grab hold of. And, and what's easier to grab hold of than something God, <laughs> other than something that God says, don't touch, right. don't eat. <laughs> so that's what, that's what he's doing here. So, so cool. Well, yeah. that's, that's the story of Micah and the Levite, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, we Micah, do get, I mean, that's part one. There's, yeah. a, there's a part two coming. Micah's going to show up, but we're going to start out with the next chapter with uh, the Danites arrive mm-hmm. on the scene. And again, that very jarring writing style, keep you off balance as a reader, doesn't seem to be connected. And then all of a sudden, wait, we are connected. Yep. And uh, we're going to see how that plays out. Okay. So, Well, cool. Well, we'll pick that up next week. And everybody out there, thanks for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, Again, be sure to like, subscribe, share with a friend, comment, comment, write us a review. All those things are appreciated. Um, if you want to be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all social media, ravencreeksc.com will get you to our website where you can find just about any other way to get a hold of us <laughs> or anyone involved with any of the shows. And past shows. So, yep. All right. Well, sounds good. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Faith and Other Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.